This is an ABC podcast. Every week I get an email from my electricity provider telling me how much I spent last week on electricity. And in the email it's got this graph comparing my usage to that of my neighbours. Basically making us silently compete with each other. And I don't know if you know this about me, but I am a competitive guy. So I want to win. But I have no idea how to. Paying for electricity is so weird. It's unlike paying for anything else. Like, I have a cup of coffee right now in my hand. It's it's an Almond Magic, a very Melbourne coffee. Double ristretto with not a whole lot of milk. Give it a try. I bought it from the cafe downstairs. I know how much I paid for it, and I can see tangibly with my eyes what I paid for. Yeah? I paid $4.50 for about 150 mils of brown gold, and I know how long it'll power me for. But with electricity, I have no idea how much it costs to use. Like, how much does it cost to turn on a light or watch a TV show or to charge my massage gun? I have no idea. But if I am going to beat my neighbours in this game of electricity Olympics, I'm going to need some help. I'm Nazim Hussain, and this is The Pineapple Project. If you look around your home and think, okay, well, that's always plugged in, that's always plugged in. That's Chris Barnes. This thing's got Wi-Fi connection, that thing's got Wi-Fi connection too. You know, it does actually add up after a while. Do a little bit of a stop take around your home, see what's actually plugged in, see what's actually using power. Might not be using very much power, but altogether, you know, why not save a few dollars on your bill? It's Chris's job to know all the worst and best stuff to have in your home. I'm the product category manager for the household products uh, here at Choice. The difference between the best and the worst can be quite significant. Look at any tourism ad campaign. Aussies love the outdoors, right? Maybe not. One study says Australians spend at least 90% of their time indoors. And with so much time spent inside, energy bills are soaring. For most of us, it's the most expensive bill we're paying every month. And where is all the energy going to? Is it the big appliances, the fridge and washing machine, or is it the sneaky little ones like charging your phone or using the doorbell? So how do you cut your home energy spend? Chris says that one of the things that a lot of people overlook is the products that don't seem to be doing anything. Anything that, you know, is sitting there with a light winking on it that you're not actually using, but that you can see the power's been being used, that's obviously probably on standby. A lot of appliances have become a lot better at this sort of thing, but there are still some appliances like game consoles, Blu-ray players, DVRs, wireless speakers, soundbars, that can just sit there quietly on standby, chewing up a few dollars here and there. You sneaky little... No one chews up my dollars and gets away with it. But how to apprehend these bandits? And even if you're someone who was aware of all this standby power consumption going on, maybe you never put together the cumulative cost of it all. Yeah, for example, you know, standby power per year for a soundbar could be anywhere from you know almost zero to fifteen twenty dollars or so. Now that doesn't sound like a lot over a year, but you you add that up around your home. Now the average home in twenty twenty three is projected to have something like twenty internet connected devices and they're all quietly using a little bit of power all the time if you've got them plugged in. So that can add up over time. All that standby power really does add up. I almost feel like I need devices that are smart enough to tell me to turn them off. But then who would tell me to turn them back on? Okay, that's what the serious power savers do. But what about you? Let's hit the streets. 
We're pretty lucky in that our house has floor-to-ceiling louvers throughout and a big tree providing lots of shade. So both of those mean that we don't use aircon a great deal and that keeps the costs way down. So our house, which is a rental, is like this old 60s dilapidated kind of vibe. Anyway, this place comes with a huge hot water heater like way beyond our needs of me and my partner and our baby. Our early bills were huge. And so now we turn it, it's off most of the time. Uh, We turn it on for like two hours every three days. It's a bit of a pain in the ass to remember, but you know, once the water starts to get tepid, you're like, okay, hot water heater back on. We have a second fridge and I often look at this and wonder, you know, should we unplug that and not use that to save electricity? But then it comes down to the fact that we need that extra freezer space and we need that extra fridge space. So when you consider things like that and look at saving power, it just seems a bit hopeless. Okay, but what about all the big energy users in my house? I know all my growing bills aren't due to standby power. At my place, it's hot all summer and cold all winter. And that might sound like a stupid thing to say, but I live in a house, yeah? I thought they were designed to shield us from the elements. I might as well be living in a cave. A lot of the energy consumption in a home goes into heating and cooling. Anywhere from a third to you know 40% or more uh, of the energy used is actually for heating and cooling in most homes. Uh, hot water uh, can account for about a quarter or so of our household energy consumption as well. Having a thermally inefficient home is actually one of the big killers. You know, not having insulation, not having you know sealed off all the gaps around the windows, under doors and so on, it means that when you're generating all that nice cool air in summer or, or warm air in winter inside the home, a lot of that energy gets lost and just sort of flies out through the windows or, or out through the ceiling. So having a, a home that's not very energy efficient is unfortunately quite common in Australia, and that actually makes, you know, then actually using the heating and cooling appliances very ineffective. And the other thing is the, the heating and cooling appliances themselves. So a lot of people, you know, don't really think about how they're using that. They just, oh, it's cold, I'll just turn the heater on. And they don't think about, well, you know, could I put it on at a lower heat? Could I just put on a jumper? Can I just put a rug on the floor and and seal off the gaps? Maybe that will do. I've actually started wearing a tank top inside in the winter with my heater running and the front door wide open. But I need the door open. Otherwise, no one's going to see me in my tank top. What a waste of seven push-ups. Anyway, enough about me. Let's hear from you. One of my pet peeves is walking past a room and the light being on and no one in it. I'm always yelling at my kids, turn off the light if you're not in the room. I'm a big one for turning off lights that aren't being used. Also PowerPoint switches. I cannot walk past a um, power switch that is on and isn't being used. So I will flip it as I walk past. I can't walk past without flipping it. And I probably would have to be on my last pair of socks or underwear or absolutely crucial that I had a certain t-shirt for the next day to even consider using my dryer and that would be after my inside drying rack was completely full. We have solar power. We try and use our dishwasher and our washing machine during the day to try and utilise that solar power. But other than this, there's not a lot 
we live very busy lives. We're juggling careers and extracurricular activities and we have two busy children and they are often running off to sport. And at the end of the day, the last thing we're thinking about is walking around the house and turning off all our appliances at the wall. Not to mention the fact that we have a lot of appliances where we can't even reach the PowerPoint. So to do that, we would then have to pull them away from the wall, get behind them, turn them off at the PowerPoint, push them back in, and then it's the reverse process every time we need to turn them back on. Meet Danielle King. She helps people every day save money on their energy bill. She's basically a saint. I think she gets paid for it, so she's a professional saint. Either way, she's so good at it, the Victorian government often enlists her help. So naturally, we had to get her on for you. And year-round, Danielle says the state of the insulation in your roof can be a huge energy drainer. Existing homes have a significant impact on the environment, especially as a lot of the homes that people are in today have been there for 30, 40, 50, 100 years. And the older the home, generally speaking, the less efficient it is. So insulation, you've got to think of it like a blanket. Like if you're in your bed and you've got a blanket over you, if there's holes in the blanket, it's not very effective and it doesn't take many holes to make it almost completely ineffective. It's very much the same with insulation in your roof. It's basically a blanket over your house and it works by trapping thousands of little air bubbles into the bulk insulation to stop the heat transfer to significantly reduce the heat transfer. So it only takes 5% of gaps to make that insulation 50% ineffective. So you really need to go up and, you know, I would suggest if able-bodied people only or get a professional in, get it checked because, you know, if it's not a complete flat coverage across the whole roof like a blanket, then it's not going to be anywhere near as effective as it should be. And insulation can save about 35 to 40% of heat going out through the roof and it can save up to 50% on heating costs if it's good. So that's quite significant. So if anyone's looking to go, all right, I need to insulate my house, Always do ceiling first, followed by drafts, followed by glazing, followed by walls, followed by floor. Australia's climate is diverse and it can be tough to build houses that suit both hot and cold weather, which is why many Aussie homes just aren't quite up to the task. For instance, some houses, especially for you pineapples up north, are just built for hot weather. So when it gets cold, well, it gets cold. But what about drafts? I'm not talking about the folder in your email. (laughs) You can do things like create buffer zones in the home. If you've got doors in in rooms that you can close off, you know, in winter to create a bit more of a buffer zone between the outside and where you are in the home, close the doors, especially in bathrooms, because bathrooms have exhaust fans that are in the roof and they act like mini chimneys and they're usually not sealed. So basically you'll have your heating on if the bathroom door's open and that's the only area that's not sealed. It will act like a chimney and suck the warm air out of the home. So simply closing the door to the bathroom can also help reduce energy use in the home and keeping it more comfortable, particularly things for renters. You know, it's a very simple thing for a renter to do. A lot of the draft proofing, you can do it yourself. Don't go for the foam seals. um, Don't last very long. And when you pull them off, they make a real mess. So always go for a rubber seal or a brush seal or something like that. Okay, simple enough, shut your doors. But people say that windows are pretty bad at insulating. So what do we do with windows? There are things like window coverings. So thermally efficient window coverings are the um, cellular blinds, the honeycomb blinds. If they're fitted closely within the rebate of the window and closed, 
it will act almost like as good as double glazing. It will provide a barrier and reduce the heat transfer. Similarly, if you have thermally lined Roman blinds that are close fitting to the window and stop, again, the air movement. And the other one is thermally lined drapes or curtains with pelmets. And the pelmet needs to be properly fitting across the top so that it stops the air traveling down between the curtain and the window, because that's where the drafts come from. And that's the air movement that needs to be reduced. What about in summer? Slightly different for summer. In summer, you want to stop the heat getting in. The way heat transfers is the heat will always move towards the cold. So if you're, if you're in winter and you're heating your house, it'll always try to get out because it's colder outside. In summer, it's hotter outside and it's usually cooler inside, so it'll try to come in. So you've kind of got to put a barrier in that stops the heat transfer from both directions. Here, If you're up north, you've just got to stop the, sun, the heat coming in. If you're down here, we need to cater for both. So when it comes to sun, you certainly the insulation in the ceiling and the walls, et cetera, definitely helps. The double glazing helps, but it's not as effective as the simple thing of keeping the sun from hitting the windows. Okay, so in summer, you want the sun not to hit your windows, but in winter, you hope it does. So I'm thinking blinds, cleverly placed and selected foliage. Be creative. But a lot of us are renting and can't make changes to the place, even if it's for the better. How do we get around that? You're in an apartment and you can't actually put anything on the outside um, and they don't allow you to do things like window tinting. I've seen people put foil, like literally foil, on the windows to reflect the heat and that's quite effective. bit ugly from the outside, but it's effective. (laughs) The other trick is, of course, some bubble wrap. (laughs) Bubble wrap's a big thing. People don't realise that you can just tape some bubble wrap to the window, to the glazing portion, and that will help reduce heat loss through the window. Except I'm certain that the police will come running if I tape bubble wrap to all the windows. I don't know why, but having bubble wrap taped to your windows just seems suspicious. I mean, one one of the ones that always gets me is a lot of people still don't think of using their reverse cycle air conditioner for heating. They think, oh no, air conditioners are for cooling, I'll I'll turn on the electric heater or I'll turn on the gas heater or whatever in wintertime. The reverse cycle air conditioner is actually one of the most efficient ways of heating your home because of the technology that they use. You're getting a lot more heat or cooling for that matter out of the unit for the electricity that it uses compared to what you would get out of a, a portable electric heater, for example. So, but there's still this kind of myth, oh no, they're terribly expensive to run for, for heating, so you know, I won't do that. Look, I mean, the fact is, you're running an air conditioner obviously does add to your electricity bill, but think about how many portable electric heaters would you need to run you know, to be the equivalent of a five or six kilowatt air conditioner? Well, you'd be running three or four or five you know, portable electric heaters, possibly. How many of you out there have a favourite appliance? You know, like the one you turn to and think, you know what, Frankie Fridge? I really, really like you. I've given mine away. The humble refrigerator. It keeps my kombucha cold and frankly, that's not something I could do without my fridge's help. But with all this energy talk, I'm starting to get worried. Because fridges have to be on. Always. Or it kind of defeats the purpose. So it's important to have a a reasonably energy efficient fridge. And Sometimes people do hang on to a fridge for too long. You know, if you might have a 15 or 20 year old fridge, and you might think it's still working fine, and, and maybe it is for what it, you know, by the standards of when it was built. But a modern fridge that you buy now is probably going to be a, a lot more energy efficient. So, thinking about replacing your fridge after 10 or 15 years is, is worthwhile doing, even if the old fridge is actually still running. 
make sure the door seals are in good condition. Uh, sometimes you can get little you know, gaps or failure of the uh, rubber seals around the doors, which means you know, some of that cold air from inside the fridge is being lost, and therefore the fridge is having to work harder and use more electricity to you know, keep things cold inside. So you know, just being a little bit sensible about um, you know, keeping an eye on the fridge, making sure that it's uh, you know, in good condition. And when you're buying any household appliance, it's really worth thinking about what's the energy rating on it. There are a lot of appliances that have a a star rating, an energy rating these days, so fridges, washing machines, you know, clothes dryers, air conditioners, TVs, all these things, you know, they're all rated for their energy consumption. So the more stars, the better. Really just factor that in into your thinking when you're looking to buy a new appliance. All right, but a lot of this is stuff that you can do with your existing home to improve it. But what if you could start from scratch to make the ideal low-energy home? Joel could and did. I'm Joel Meadows. I live in Castlemaine, which is the lands of the Jajarung people, the, the Jara people. You know, my wife and I have not worked full-time for... Neither of us have worked full-time for over 20 years and neither of us intend to. I think we live like kings, but we live theoretically under the poverty line by Australian standards. We've designed a house that has no heating and cooling in it and it stays in a comfortable range for, you know, 99.9% of the year. So we don't have to heat the house. So it can be freezing outside and it's 20 degrees inside. That just is using the, the sun's energy and the changing angle of the sun over the year and good insulation and good thermal mass properties and good ventilation through our windows and stuff to actually make a house that captures the winter sun's energy, excludes the summer sun's energy and keeps us in a, in a comfortable range. So, so the house basically takes care of heating and cooling. We still have to do stuff like open and close blinds and open and close windows. So we're quite active in summer in checking the temperature inside and out and responding to that. Impressive stuff. I wonder what he does with power and water. So there's a, a tank in a tower off the side of the house and three old reclaimed flatbed solar panels that heat the water and for about 90% of the time the sun heats the water and then it just gravity feeds into the house. So we have hot water most of the year round just from that. Heating and cooling and hot water, which are the, the three big ones for Australian households, we don't put any fossil energy into at all and we have no bills associated with those things. I suspect there's a clear link between saving money on our household power bills and reducing our carbon footprint and saving the planet. Saul Griffith is an engineer and an inventor, and he runs an initiative called Rewiring Australia. Well, the reason to electrify everything is twofold. One is for climate reasons and one is for hip pocket reasons. The only way we will get to zero emissions is to electrify a lot of things we do today that use fuel. Uh, look at the things in your life that you own that use fossil fuels. Figure out when they're going to, to kick the bucket or you're going to want to replace them and start saving your frugal pennies so that you're buying the electric version of those things when it comes up for replacement, whether that's your car, whether that's your water heater, whether that's your kitchen, whether that's your space heater. So it's a small number of things. Add to that rooftop solar, build the biggest system you can, add a battery when they get cheaper. So the cost of a solar system, and I'm not talking about the planets, is anywhere between three and $12,000. That's a lot of money. You'd really want to be sure that it's worth it before forking out that amount of cash. Frugal 
with a glass jar where you've got to save up all the money in the glass jar to then buy the electric car and buy the solar cells. That's a pretty tough way to do frugality because here's the fundamental conflict about these clean energy technologies. They cost you more up front. So the electric car, as many of you have felt, is more expensive in the showroom than the petrol one. The electric cooktop is a little bit more expensive than the gas one, etc., etc., etc. But the fuel in the future costs you a lot more if you're running on natural gas or petrol or diesel. So the frugality question is really a question of planning and access to credit and financing. So it doesn't feel frugal right up front because these machines currently cost a little bit more, but it is frugal over the long term. Okay, Sol, I'm on board. What do I do? Do I, do I start by chucking out everything that doesn't use solar power? I mean, what do I do with my car? So let's just step back for a second and remember that we're playing a long game here. We've got to get to zero emissions by 2035, 2040. You're going to have to buy a car sometimes in the next 15 or 20 years. You're going to have to buy a stove sometimes in the next 15, 20 years. You're going to have to replace the water heater, replace those heating systems. So it's not like you should rush out tomorrow and replace them all with the perfect electric one. That would be expensive and not terribly frugal. What you really need to do is just make sure that you're saving your pennies because you know that the water heater is going to blow up in 2026 so that when that happens, you've got the money saved to buy the electric water heater. Same with the cars, same with the things. And if every Australian household followed that recipe, wait until the machine breaks and then replace it with a clean electric alternative, that hits our climate targets and that's probably the most frugal pathway to zero emissions. There's a real opportunity here. We can save money and save the planet all at once. And let's face it, if we don't do some of the stuff in this episode, there won't really be a planet left to save money on. And look, I'll be the first to admit, all the stuff we've covered in this episode sounds like a lot. It's a massive pivot. So let's break it all down for you and me and baby step our way there. Here are the top tips. One, download an energy app or get a power panel. This will help you see how much energy you're actually using and what's costing you the most. Two, in winter, create buffer zones in your home. If you want to keep warm, close doors and windows so you're not paying more to heat rooms you're not actually in. Three, cover those windows, okay? Four, switch things off, even PowerPoints that don't have anything plugged into them. That's costing you money too. Five, go solar, dump the coal. When you can afford to, of course. And six, hang your clothes on the line. Let the sun do the work. It's free. Next time on The Pineapple Project. It's expensive, it's in every ad break, and many of us have no idea whether we even need it. We answer all your questions about private health insurance. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app. Hey, it's Joe Lauder here and I've got a brand new podcast I want to tell you about. It's called Who's Going to Save Us? And it's a climate change podcast that's not strictly about climate change because we know climate change is real and we're all too familiar with the devastation it's causing. Who's Going to Save Us? is a show about how much better things could be and the people fighting to get us there. So if you liked hearing from Saul in this episode of The Pineapple Project, 
you're in luck. You're going to meet Saul and a bunch of people just like him on our show. Like the climate scientists pushed to their limits by a lack of action, the traditional owners fighting back to stop major gas projects on their land, and some uni students who've taken their idea for a climate change court case from their classroom in Vanuatu to the UN. The science team at ABC RN and the team at Triple J Hack have been travelling all around the country to meet the people making real change and making it now. Who's Gonna Save Us is your roadmap to a better future. Find it now on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>